Uh, Today is the final sermon in our four-week sermon series. After spending 34 weeks in Hebrews, like four weeks on on what is the church and the marks and works of the church and church membership seems like it's just flown by. Um, So thank you for for, um, leaning into this topic with me. It's been fun to to preach through it. And it's really been a challenge to me as I've shared with you guys already. Uh, But we've called this little mini-series Better Be the Church. Not like, oh, you better be the church or else I'm coming to get you. But how can we better be the church? There, we always have room to grow individually and corporately. And so that's why we've been focusing on the church these last four weeks. And the goal of this series has been to help us better be the church that Christ desires. If you remember that quote going three, three weeks back. And it was when I introduced that quote from one of my seminary professors about better be the church as our challenge. We, that, that week we explored the nature of the church. And guys, there's so much confusion about what the Bible says about the church. So we looked at the nature of the church that first week, and we saw two aspects of the church with a big C. There is the universal church that's made up of every true believer who's trusted in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit has been spiritually united to Christ the head and to the other members of the body. This invisible or universal... um, mysterious, mystical, people have used a lot of words, but that is every true believer who's ever trusted in Christ being united together under the headship of Christ. That's one way to speak of the church. The other aspect we saw is seeing the church as the visible global church. That is right now, the the living professing believers around the world in the visible global church that is made up of local churches of Christians. And that's what we talk about when we talk about the visible church or the body of Christ in that sense as well. So we looked at that. Uh, We also, over the past two weeks, have been considering the essential marks of an authentic local church, which we looked at were orthodoxy, order, and ordinances. Then we also, last week, looked at the essential works of a local church, which are evangelism, edification, and exaltation. So we looked at that last week. And then today, we're going to look at the importance of church membership. And I love talking about church membership because I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. And sometimes we don't talk about rightly or biblically, I should say. So today we're going to talk about membership. And guys, I want you to think about like this. This is the culmination of the last three weeks. This is where we go from the theoretical or the theological realm of talking about the nature of the church and things of this nature. And it actually, the the rubber meets the road in actual church membership when we're committing ourselves to local bodies of believers that we live out our lives in Christ together with, okay? But church membership is a challenging topic to preach or teach on. Why do I say that? Is it because the Bible doesn't say anything about church membership, as some people claim? No, it's actually because the Bible speaks, it addresses church membership directly, but it addresses church membership in a way that really honestly contradicts a lot of what we think about when we think about the term membership. The biblical account of membership is much different than our our cultural account or definition of it. And that's why it makes it so hard because we're not just taking empty bags and packing them with biblical theological information. We're actually having to take the bags that we've all grown up with and added stuff to over the years and unpack those bags before we can put back in there what Scripture actually says about being a member of a local church. And that's what makes it extra challenging to do. But I welcome the challenge, and I hope you do as well. Just the other day, I was on a website for a, one of these, um, I don't know what you call them, 
like a big membership warehouse club, all right? I don't want to sponsor anybody, you know, officially from the pulpit, but uh, I was on the website for, for one that my dad belongs to, one of these big membership warehouse clubs, and I stumbled upon their membership page. Uh, the Google put me on it, I think, but uh, anyway, I was greeted by this, this huge, bold-faced, you know, type font message at the top, and here's what it said. It said, join our family. That's confusing right there, that a retail store is asking you to join their family. And it says, uh, after the, the colon, it says, enjoy incredible quality perks and prices. And then it lists this huge long list with little check marks about what you can get with the Plus membership and all the different perks. And they're all oriented around the comfort and convenience of their customers. Whoops, I'm sorry, the members of their retail family. That's who it's oriented around, is finding uh, as much comfort and convenience as possible for those members of their retail family, i.e. their customers. And it struck me in sort of a convicting way that I might see something similar on a church website, especially in our culture. I mean, think about what we do with marketing, right? We're, we're guilty of this in the church. Our, our website might say something similar. It might say, join the Wayside family, enjoy incredible quality and perks. And then we could list a whole bunch of areas of quality and the different perks of becoming a member of Wayside Communities Church, i.e. differentiating ourselves from the competition, right? And who's the competition? It's all the other local churches in the area. So we've got to differentiate our product, right? Our service, so that people come to our church. Um, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but that's kind of how it shakes out sometimes. But guys, this is a very unhealthy way to engage with our local community. This is a very unhealthy message to present to our local community. And it's a really unhealthy way to engage with other churches in our community, okay? I want to make, make sure that's clear. We can't afford to think of a church as a marketplace of spiritual goods and services. None of us would say, yes, that's exactly how we should think of the church. But the problem is, is that we bring that into the church. I do too, okay? We bring in this, this sort of inherent sort of subconscious thought that church is really a purveyor of religious information and religious experiences. And we are the consumer. It is one of the options in that marketplace. So unless we exchange our culturally informed understanding of church for a biblical understanding, then we will never experience the actual perks of committed church membership in a local body of believers. So what does the Bible say about church membership and what are those perks of which I speak? Uh, That's what we're going to look at today, and I hope this will leave a lasting impression on you. It has on me, okay? Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, wants every single one of us to experience the perks of membership in his body, and we do that by becoming committed members of a local church. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we actually enjoy the perks of being members in the body of Christ, And only then can we experience shepherding, sanctification, and service. Those are the perks we're going to look at today. Shepherding, sanctification, and service. So the first perk of church membership is shepherding. And and a biblical approach to shepherding. I'm trying to speak in biblical terms here. A biblical approach, a New Testament approach, even an Old Testament approach to shepherding requires membership. And we can think about this from two different perspectives. And and scripture does. We can think about it uh, as the perspective of the shepherds, 
in the local churches, and we can also think about it from the perspective of the sheep. That is the Christians, the saints, that make up these local churches. So without church membership, how are the shepherds going to know who they're supposed to be shepherding? I pose the question. Without some sort of formal recognition of church membership, how are the shepherds going to know who to shepherd? I think about this a lot. Because I've been called to a shepherding role in a local church. The authors of the New Testament, they assume that shepherds know exactly who their sheep are. I'm going to make that case. Just consider the words of Paul and Peter, two of the apostles. Listen to their words. Luke records in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul comes through and he gathers the elders from the local church, the, the church in Ephesus, and he meets the elders. And this is what Paul says to him. They're the shepherds in the church at Ephesus. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then listen to what Peter says. He says, therefore, I urge elders among you. He's, he's writing to this, these scattered local churches. I urge elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And then he says this in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, where? Among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, as though this is something I have to do, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not with greed, but with eagerness, nor yet as domineering over, listen, those assigned to your care, but proving to be examples to the flock. So according at least to the apostles who were trained by Jesus directly, God has placed particular sheep, that is particular Christians, under the care of particular shepherds in particular local churches. And, and folks, church membership allows those shepherds to know who their sheep are. So let's consider the flip side now, okay? This is what I think about all the time. Let's think about from the, from the pews, all right? Without church membership, how are the sheep, i.e. The, the saints in these local churches, how are the sheep going to know who they're supposed to submit to? And we talked about, I know the words submit and obey, they make our skin crawl in our culture. We talked about that at the end of Hebrews. But that's a good question. Is, is Jesus calling us to submit to local church leaders? Yes. But again, the, the New Testament authors assume that Christians know which local church leaders they're accountable to. Is this important? Yes. Listen to the words of Paul and the author of Hebrews to the local churches. Paul in 1 Thessalonians writes this. Just, just think, about, think about this. But we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work live in peace with one another. And then the author of Hebrews, what I referenced earlier, Hebrews 13, 7 and 17, the author writes, he's writing to, I, I believe, a particular local church, but he says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their way of life, imitate their faith. There's a lot of this ex ex example and imitation language in these. And then in 17, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls 
as those who will give an account. That is, will give an account to Jesus Christ our Lord, the chief shepherd, so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. So guys, Jesus wants his sheep to be shepherded well. That was one of the most scathing uh, criticisms of Jesus and of God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, and of Jesus in his earthly ministry. One of his most scathing repudiations of the leadership of Israel was the fact that they were bad shepherds. They were taking advantage of the sheep. They weren't nurturing the faith of the sheep. They weren't making Israel to be what it was supposed to be as God's holy people. And they were abdicating their role in that, okay? So it's serious. Jesus wants his sheep to be shepherded well, and this requires church membership. Now, I've got a neighbor friend who actually, y'all, some of y'all have met. He's attended our church a couple times, and I love this guy. He just lives down the street, and he actually attends another much larger church down the road, one of our competitors, right? Uh, nobody checked his card at the door. Somehow he got in here. I don't know. Uh, but, but so he, he went through this phase a couple years back where we got to know each other and he started really wrestling with a really important doctrine of the Christian faith. The, the fancy term is the penal substitutionary atonement. And what that means is that Jesus Christ actually came down to earth to die on the cross for our sins as our sin substitute, that he paid the penalty for our sins as our sin substitute. Guys, I can't tell you how important that doctrine is in the Christian faith in scripture okay so he's wrestling with it he's really doubting it it just sounds it just doesn't it's it just for his ears it sounds strange that that god would have wrath towards sin and that jesus christ would have that wrath towards sin poured out on him really wrestling in his faith with this and so he came to me and he was talking to me about it and i met him a couple times and um you know we had coffee and i gave him some resources that i had this one book in particular on the meaning of the cross and he read it um and so we had some good uh, exchanges, but guys, listen, at the end of the day, I'm not his shepherd. I, I can't be his shepherd, right? And why is that? There's a pastor at his church, which is a much larger church down the street. There is a pastor somewhere at that church that is going to be held accountable for how this man is shepherded in his Christian life in the local church. And that pastor at his church is not me. So what he really needs to be doing is engaging with that pastor at his local church. And and I'm not saying this because I don't love him. I'm not, you know, I I love him. And I really, and I'm fascinated by the conversations and I love going through the material with him. But it's not that I don't love him. It's not that I don't like waxing theological at Rudy's over a cup of coffee early in the morning. I love all those things. But folks, I have to be a good steward of the God-given responsibility to shepherd the people who have committed themselves to this local body of believers, to Wayside Communities Church, and who have submitted to the spiritual oversight of our church leaders. That's my God-given responsibility. That's who I'm going to be accountable to in front of Jesus Christ when I stand before him someday. And ultimately, who I'm accountable to now. Without membership... Oh, and I should say this, as shepherds, like we have to know the difference between a brother or sister in Christ in the neighborhood or in the area that we love and that we want to see grow in Christ, but at the end of the day is just a brother or sister in Christ in the neighborhood that belongs to a different church. We have to know the difference as church leaders between those individuals and the actual sheep of our flock. 
And, and my position, I think the biblical position is, without membership, we would not know the difference, and it would ultimately weaken our ability to shepherd well. To experience the perk of faithful shepherding, we must make a commitment by submitting to a particular local church and its leadership. And this sounds so weird to us because we've grown up in a fishbowl. We don't even know we're swimming in the water of consumerism and individualism. But come on. We're swimming in the water of consumerism and individualism. We're in that fishbowl. We've all grown up in that fishbowl. We can't imagine submitting our lives to other people in the body. And yet this is exactly how we live out our submission to Christ the head. How do you live out? How do you incarnate your submission to Jesus Christ the head of the body? It's by subjecting yourself to other members of the body. And that's just Christians in general in your local church, but then also specifically submitting to obeying the local church leaders that God has sovereignly placed over that local body of believers. So instead of acting autonomously, which we do, I mean, that's our default. Like a decision comes up in life and we act autonomously on trying to figure that out. But instead of doing that, we can bring others, other brothers and sisters in Christ in our local church into the decisions that we make in this life. And you're going to be offended by this. And I am offended by this, but I'm going to say it because it's true. All right. We can ask for prayer and counsel and we can help each other make wise decisions that will bless others and honor Christ. Let me give you some examples. I promise you, you'll be like, what in the, why would I ever talk to my, the people up at that church I go to about these things or, or bring this up to the elders at my church or the women's discipleship team at my church? Think about some of these things. Whether to take a job promotion. Do you know Jesus cares about whether or not we take job promotions and what jobs and whether we move to a different city, I mean, I, I wouldn't even consider, you know, like, well, I just, if it makes sense, do it, right? But we make those decisions autonomously. But think about that. If you move, John Carr, if you move to a different city, that's going to affect this body of believers. Like, you're a gifted member in the body of Christ here in this local body, and that's going to have ripples, implications, all right? What about uh, school? Like, what school we put our kids in or what sports league we decide to join? These are things that we think of as like the sort of the, the not churchy stuff of life, you know. But guys, our relationship with Christ and other Christians encapsulates all of our life. And it all has ripple effects. The decision to pursue a romantic relationship. Whoa, you're out of bounds, pastor. All right. But this is how it's worked throughout all of church history. Is that when we make these major life decisions, we seek wisdom and prayer and guidance from our local body of believers and the leadership in it. Or how about to foster a child? And we've actually worked with people at our church about that decision, whether to adopt or foster, um, have more kids, etc. And you think, man, that's an intrusion on my private space. But again, all of our lives encapsulate our relationship with Christ. Or should I say, all, our relationship with Christ and other Christians in the church encapsulates our entire lives. Um, from a cultural perspective, you just make those decisions yourself, and then you might tell somebody about it after the decision's been made. But from a biblical perspective, you and I would submit these decisions to trusted brothers and sisters in our local church who would then pray for us and provide, hopefully, biblical wisdom that pertains to our decision. And that's what shepherding is all about. So at a, yes, at a general level, we're all shepherding one another. And then there are specific individuals that are placed within the local body to shepherd as leaders in the local church, okay? 
that's, uh, that's what shepherding is all about, and it only works in the context of committed church membership to have those trusted relationships. And that leads to our next perk, which is the goal of faithful shepherding. The second perk of church membership, guys, is sanctification. <laughs> what do I mean by that? When I say sanctification, I'm referring to the lifelong process of being made more and more like Christ and more and more holy and set apart for God's purposes by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is something we're all in. If we bowed the knee to Christ, then we're all in this lifelong process of sanctification. In other words, we call it discipleship, being disciples of Jesus Christ and learning from him and growing. But that happens in the context of community. And there's essentially two ways that we're discipled in the local church. I want you to think about two sides of the same coin. Discipline, discipleship, the root in that is learner, all right? A disciple's a learner. Discipline is the process of learning. How do we learn, kids? You'll, you'll resonate with this. This will resonate with you. We can learn in a formative way where there's a, a curriculum or maybe it's an informal kind of curriculum of life, but we, we get preaching and teaching and guidance and counsel and encouragement and all these different things, mentoring, etc., and in order to do that well, uh, well, I'm sorry, I skipped over the other side of the coin. This is the one that we all have the problem with. The other side of the coin is corrective discipline. You have to have both. It's both sides of a coin. Formative discipline is what we think about as positive. Corrective discipline, rebuke and correction and things of this nature, reproof, we think of as negative, but really they're both beneficial, however you look at them. And those are the two ways we're going to look at so church membership makes formative discipline possible. This is the intentional process, again, of teaching and preaching and counseling and guiding and mentoring and encouraging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in order to do this well, leaders need to know who they're supposed to be teaching and equipping. This gets back to my point earlier. Because why? Because it's, just, it's not some general curriculum that we just slop onto people generically. Like this formative discipline that goes on in local churches needs to be honed according to the people we're forming and their personalities and experiences and, and, and struggles and strengths and weaknesses and all these things. So it really, to do that well, leaders need to know who they're supposed to be teaching and equipping. And then church membership also makes corrective discipline possible. I hope that we wouldn't argue this, but without membership, the New Testament passages on corrective discipline, and there are several... Uh, they would make no sense whatsoever outside of the context of an actual formal church membership, okay? I'm going to read you Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. These are two of the most obvious uh, passages on corrective church discipline. Uh, and I want you to just think about whether this would make any sense at all without formal church membership, okay? Matthew 18, Jesus says, Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Is that something we could do outside the local church with other Christians and other churches? And Yes. Now, let's keep going, though. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. Can we do that outside and between local churches? Yeah, yeah, to some degree. Keep going. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church... And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That doesn't mean you hate them. In fact, that means that you, you see them as acting not like a Christian, 
and therefore saying, you're not looking like a Christian, we're going to put you outside of the church because you're acting like an unbeliever with your unrepentant sin. And hopefully, and Paul says this over and over again, that's a loving action that will lead to repentance and the reestablishment of fellowship with God and with God's people. That's the whole point of church discipline. That's the whole point of correction. Is It's a loving act. If you enable that sin, that is the least loving thing you can possibly do for a person. And it totally wrecks the holiness of the body of Christ. Um, okay, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, and then 12 and 13. You have become, he's talking about this person that they have in the church in Corinth who's doing some pretty, uh, uh, who's in sin, I'll put it that way, all right? Verse 2, you have become arrogant, he tells the church, and have not mourned instead over this person's sin, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For what business of mine, he goes on to say at the end of this chapter, for what business of mine is it to judge outsiders, those outside the church? Do you not judge those who are within the church? And the answer there is yes, we, we should. And then he says, but those who are outside, God judges. Um, and then he says this, he quotes the Old Testament, remove the evil person from among yourselves. So how in the world are we to make sense of these crucial passages on church discipline if we ultimately have no way of knowing who is an insider and who is an outsider? Just functionally speaking, how in the world are we supposed to follow that? Corrective discipline is, and please hear me on this, we all need corrective discipline. You might not need it right now, and you might think, oh, that kind of seems harsh. But guys, every child needs it growing up to be a godly man or woman. Every man or woman in Christ needs corrective discipline. Okay? It is incredibly beneficial for unrepentant individuals and for the church body as a whole. But without church membership, it is essentially impossible. And it, and that, it doesn't mean it's easy when there is church membership. It is still a messy and heart-wrenching process a lot of the times. So membership ensures that we are accountable to a particular body of believers who take responsibility for our spiritual growth, especially, especially when we need loving correction. If we don't take responsibility for each other in the local church and our church families, we are doing each other a, a disservice. But if we actually take responsibility and go, man, God has put them in my church family and I'm responsible to them at some level for their spiritual growth and development, especially when it needs to be loving correction. And did you notice where most church discipline starts and, and honestly, most church discipline ends? At what level? The level of a brother or sister in Christ coming to another brother or sister in Christ in the local church and saying, hey, I'm listening to how you're speaking to your wife. Uh, what's going on there? Uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's not respectful. Um, this is not how God wants us to treat her, okay? What's going on, at, what's going on with you? Let's talk, you know? And then hopefully at that stage, that brother says, man, you're right. I've been stressed out at work. I'm just not in the word. I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm struggling. Could you help me? Could you help hold me accountable? I'm repenting. Yes, you're forgiven. Jesus died for that. And it, and it ends right there. Most of the time, it never has to elevate beyond which that's a beautiful thing, man. If we can do that, we are on the right track, folks. Uh, the Old Testament, and I know you know this because we, we've looked at Proverbs and Psalms in the past, but the Old Testament is chocked full 
in the wisdom sayings of the importance of corrective discipline and our need for loving correction, okay? And I love how Proverbs 27.6 says this. And listen to the, um, it's poetic, and so he's, he's kind of, he's saying something ironically. Proverbs 27.6, the author says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And he goes on to say, but but, um, basically how terrible are the kisses, how deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, if we act like there's not sin in somebody's life, then basically we're just kissing them and we're presenting ourselves as their enemy, the enemy of their sanctification, the enemy of their spiritual growth in Christ. But he says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Does it hurt when somebody calls us out on our sin? Is it embarrassing? Does it make us angry? Or does it make us feel ashamed? Or or do we kind of sometimes go into like self-pity or, you know, want to sever the relationship? All these things can happen. But those wounds are faithful and they're out of a heart of love. So, So it's one thing for one friend to lovingly wound us with correction, right? But, but think about how much more effective correction is when you have a whole church family that loves you enough to call out your sin and hold you accountable. I mean, one friend can change the course of our lives. How much more so an entire church family of people that feel a responsibility to us to help us walk that straight path in Christ and not get out into the weeds. But if we're only loosely connected to a local church, then we won't develop the kind of community that will eventually sanctify and and correct us when needed. Committed membership in a local church leads to sanctification, to our increasing Christ-likeness. And in our hearts, we know that we need accountability. I don't think anybody, any adult in here would say, no, I'm good, I don't need accountability. I got this sin thing licked, right? No, you know how vulnerable you are, so do I. (laughs) of me and you, right? We all know how vulnerable we are. We know that accountability is ultimately good for us. And here, I'll go one further. We actually respect people who love us enough to lean into our lives, not only with teaching and equipping and spending time with us in that positive sense of formative discipline, but we respect people who love us enough to especially rebuke and correct us when necessary. And if we don't appreciate those kind of people in our lives, then the problem is ours. And we're missing out. We're also really good at the same time at staying just outside the reach of anyone who might call out our sin. Right? We, we, we've got, we're masters at just staying right outside the reach of like having that relationship to where they would really feel comfortable leaning in to our life and calling out our sin. Uh, remaining aloof and unaccountable, what does it do? What does it do for sheep? Being aloof and unaccountable, it sets you up to be an easy target for temptation and spiritual attack. And if you don't think there is such a thing, then we need to sit down and chat. But what makes you an easy target is remaining aloof and unaccountable and loosely associated with other Christians in a local church, okay? And that makes you an easy target. So let's draw near to the warmth and the light of the fire that burns at the heart of Christian community in a local body of believers, rather than staying out in the shadowy periphery of being loosely attached or associated with a local church. All right? Let's move to the front row, not the back row, metaphorically speaking, for all you guys on the back row. Um, 
The more we grow in Christ-likeness, the more we'll experience our final perk. And the third and final perk of church membership that I want to go over today, guys, is service. Service. And, and I would say this, like membership, that word, that word brings to mind, for me, it brings to mind standing in the member services line at one of those membership retail club things, you know, uh, and waiting to get my card reprinted, you know, because I lost it, right? We've done that, you know, and you're standing there and there's a giant sign that says member services. And that's what we think of when we think of service, standing in line. Uh, at, the, at, the lo- at the desk of the membership warehouse down the street, or strolling through the aisles, looking at stuff, eating samples of like Totino's pizza rolls or whatever on a Saturday, and waiting on our complimentary tire rotation or our glasses adjustment. That's what we think of when we think of service. It's a, it's a consumeristic context. Consumer culture has affected us all. Now, I'm not beating y'all up. Like we're all, like I said, it's a fishbowl we've been swimming in, but we need to realize that we're swimming in this fishbowl. But consumer culture has affected all of us, so we tend to have a self-serving attitude. We don't naturally have a selfless, self-sacrificial, other-oriented, Christ-like attitude. That's why Jesus Christ came down to die on the cross for us, okay? And to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. He's the one that gave up all of it to come down and not to be served, but to serve, as Mark points out in his gospel. So we tend to have a self-serving attitude, but service in the church is very different from what we see in the culture. Service in the church involves mutual self-sacrifice in which we are served, yes, in vital ways, even as we serve others. And it's all part of the same communal engagement, mutual self-sacrifice. Service means that God meets our needs through the local church. Please hear me on this. We all have needs. And the primary agent through which God meets our needs is our brothers and sisters in Christ in our local church. And that that could be spiritual needs, physical needs, financial needs, relational needs. The primary agent for God to meet those needs in our life is a loving body of believers that we're committed to. And, and, And think about this. Remember when Jesus said, remember he had all these Jewish people that were leaving their families. I mean, not intentionally, but their families were disowning them, disinheriting them, because they had gone, they had taken their Judaism and said, I found the Messiah. I found him. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And they're going, pshaw, you know, like, get out of here. We're disinheriting you. They lost everything. They couldn't get jobs. Uh, Same thing happened with uh, the Gentiles. When they started not showing up to the pagan sacrifices for the the, uh, silversmiths guild, They started getting kicked out of their professions. They couldn't get work. They didn't have money. And so Jesus says, if you've given up mother, father, sisters, brothers, farms, and he goes into like property and things like this for the kingdom of God. And he doesn't say this like in the future, in the kingdom, when it's, you know, when Jesus Christ returns, he says, now you will receive a hundred times mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, farms, etc. What does he mean by that? He means that the church is the primary way in which God, which Jesus Christ the head, plans to meet the needs of the members of his body. Okay? Um, We become the beneficiaries of a large family of beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And service also means that God uses us to meet the needs of others in the local church. This is where it goes back and forth. Guys, if you've 
trusted in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and rose again for your forgiveness and eternal life, that you could be reconciled to God in a relationship for the rest of eternity, if you've trusted that Jesus Christ and his personal work has accomplished that for you, then folks, you have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit and you have been gifted for the purpose of serving others in the local church. Consider these passages. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. We love it because it talks about the body of Christ and talks about the members and spiritual gifts. This is a go-to for talking about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, But to each one, each one, every single one, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not so that we can take a spiritual gifts gifts test and feel like we feel more purposeful because now we know what our spiritual gift is. That's not enough. We have to employ our gifts in a way that benefits the, the, the church, the common good in the church. And then 1 Peter 4.10, I love it. It says, as each one, again, every single one, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. I love that passage good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. How does the grace of God come into our life? Yes, through being united with Christ through faith, but but in everyday rubber meets the road, incarnate ways, how does it come into our life? Primarily through our, our fellow members in the body. And then Romans 12 says, For just as we have many parts in one body, and all the body's parts do not have the same function... So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly. And then he goes into this list of gifts. So, folks, the local church is where we get to use our God-given gifts to serve others. Now, can that happen outside the church? If you are gifted at... at, um, Administration, can you employ that gift outside the local church? Yes. But what, what is the primary context that God has gifted you for to serve others? That's the local church. He has sovereignly placed us in local bodies of believers so that we can function as members for the good of the rest of the body. Do you think Jesus is interested in which church you commit to? Yes. Do you think he's just indiscriminate about it? Like, just go find a church. No. He's gifted you. He's given you a role to fill, a specific particular role in a particular group of people to be a blessing to those folks. Without church membership, our sacrificial service loses focus, and we often neglect our gifts, and we miss opportunities to bless others. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal. I I hope this sticks with you, but the article was titled, Supply Isn't the Problem with Organ Transplants. We get this, this uh, maybe some of the doctors in the room can agree with me here, but we get this idea that, oh man, like we have like such a shortage of organs that need to be donated to go into people's bodies. Um, my, uh, my mom's husband, Bob, uh, Bobby, he just donated a kidney down in Houston to his buddy who was dying of kidney disease, all right? But, but this article and a lot of articles that I looked at say that, that it's not supply, that it's not the amount of organs that are available that's the problem. So this is what David uh, Will or Weil writes. He says, there are plenty of donors to meet the need, but the system is so inefficient that available organs often don't reach the desperate patients. We are just failing, he says, to make effective use of the organs that we could transplant. 
Now, could that be said of the local bodies of believers that make up the body of Christ? I know I could take a rock, maybe in a slingshot, maybe not throwing, and hit several houses of older Christian men and women in this neighborhood who are gifted at and passionate about discipling and mentoring young married couples. They're good at it. They've done it. They have experience in it. And I could hit their house with a rock right now. And, and right now, and I know this because I know them personally, right now they are simply attending Sunday morning worship services at a larger church down the street. You know, you know why? Because there's so many people that they already have enough people to be elders and disciplers and teachers. They already have enough people mentoring younger couples at that church because they have a plethora of people gifted and passionate about that. And so they just go to you know, participate. And that's not a knock on them. What I'm saying is, what if God would nudge their hearts to commit to a, a small local church like ours in the neighborhood, nonetheless, to lean in and help us in an area that we need help. We need help mentoring and discipling young married couples, really all married couples. Uh, we need that. But how cool would it be if God nudged some of those folks to become committed members of a church like ours in which they could immediately employ their gifts and passions for the glory of Christ and for the good of the members of his body? Committed church membership allows us to use our gifts and abilities to serve others. And I, I read that a donated kidney can only survive outside a body for 36 to 48 hours before you got to discard it. And after that, the tissue dies, it becomes useless. And folks, get this. A study that came out, I think it was two years ago, they found that something like 3,500 good kidneys every year are being thrown away for various reasons. 3,500 kidneys every year in the United States are being discarded. For whatever reason, they don't end up in bodies. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then, then you and I are members of the body of Christ. But listen to this. I want you to catch the language here because it's so important. It's not just we're theoretically members of the universal body of Christ, but Jesus has donated us to local bodies of believers where we can function for the good of others. We are donated organs. The head, Jesus Christ our Lord, is donating us as gifted individuals to certain local bodies to perform certain functions I don't know what the analogy would be to blood filtration or whatever else, but certain functions within particular local bodies of believers that only we can fill. He has donated us to these bodies. And I remember, uh, I was thinking about functions. One time I had to put together this procedural document for our church. There's certain things you got to do sometimes. And I just, it was a mind numbing task. And I remember I was, I was just talking to uh, one of the women at Wayside and she goes, I love editing procedural documents and I was like and I was like this is so I immediately forwarded her like two of these documents we had to do for like IRS purposes or something and she just like plowed through them with a red pen and sent them back was like I would change this and I would adjust this I'm like praise Jesus for you you know like that's that's just a great example of something you don't think about but some we're all filling different functions um, however you're wired, whatever your personality, your spiritual gifts, your abilities, your experiences, your relationships, your capacities, all these things, however you're wired, your interests, Jesus has donated you to a local church to fill a role that only you can fill. There's not another Stacy Brummett 
or Rachel Brown or Nikki Bellington or Trey Bellington. You are unique and you are uniquely made to fulfill a role in a local body of believers. Um, so kidneys are no use if they stay in that little surgical dish. You know the one I'm talking about. They got the person all draped over and they got that little like sterile dish and the kidney's sitting in there after they pull it out of the ice, you know? That kidney is doing nobody any good if it sits in that little dish. What do you got to do? You got you to vitally connect it into the body. You have to incorporate it into that living body so that it gets blood flow and oxygen and it can function for the good of that body. And folks, Christians do no good on the periphery of a local church. Out in the weeds, out in the shadows, back on that back pew, out there in aloofness and, and, and lack of accountability. We do no good there. We have to become incorporated and connected through committed church membership. And I will close by rereading a quote that we looked at three weeks ago. And again, it's where I got the title for this mini-series. Dr. Scott Harrell, who wrote a book on the church, he addresses local churches in it. And he says this, Our challenge in the coming decades is not necessarily to grow bigger or even to maintain what we have, although these may be worthy objectives. Rather, our challenge is to better be the church that Christ desires. And my prayer for Wayside is that we would rise to that challenge and it's going to require committing ourselves to the God-glorifying work of evangelism and edification and exaltation as we talked about. And it's going to take every single one of us leaning into the life of this local body of believers by becoming committed church members. Next week, we're going, to, we're going to open up the book of Acts. And we're going to see this played out in church history. We're going to get to see people enjoying the incredible perks of committed church membership. And believe me, they knew they were perks in that persecuted society. And we're going to look at that, and it's going to be fun. We're going to see faithful shepherding. We're going to see spiritual growth. And we're going to see sacrificial service for the good of others. So let's pray. Please bow your heads with me.